Welcome to A Christian and an Atheist Walk Into a Bar. I'm Phil Thompson, and I'm the Christian. I'm Neil Newton, and I am the Atheist. Well, Neil, I know that it's, what, 9 o'clock out in L.A.? It's 10.30-ish. 10.30-ish? Oh, well, we've been talking for a while. Also, I can't do math. 10.30-ish. So so I don't expect you uh, to be drinking quite yet. No, well, you know, and I'm going to be drinking a lot today anyway, so... Um, <laughs> well, congratulations. Um, What's the occasion? Yeah, yeah. Well, after this, I have a bluegrass jam that I'll be playing it, and then I'm going to the Pirates versus the Dodgers. Wow. Um, the Pirates versus I'll the be, Dodgers in L.A. In L.A., yep. Outstanding. Yep, exactly. But you are drinking. What, what, what are I you am drinking. I, I'm drinking a local micro-brew from a little brewery called... Acrospire, which is in Glenshaw. This is their triple IPA. And a friend of mine, Myson Robles, hey, Myson, uh, gave me a bottle of this because uh, the owners of this particular brewery are members at his church, Bethlehem Lutheran Church. And uh, the brewery is right across the street from the church. And I just admire that so much because... If, if you're Lutheran and part of your piety is brewing beer, then that's about as authentic as it gets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, you know, churches try to use music to get people into church. They do. But I think, I, I think breweries are a better option. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. And, and, and certainly Martin Luther agreed. So I, I feel like this is really in keeping with the spirit of the Reformation. Uh, <laughs> uh, this came in a bottle with a cork in it, which I've already opened so that I could pour it into my mug here. So you won't hear that satisfying, you know, uh, can pop, but I'm going to give this a, a sip. Mm, that's really good. That's really complex. I'm not necessarily an IPA fan. Um, no, no. But this, this, um, this is um, aged in oak and it's got a little bit of that buttery taste that you get in wines that are aged in oak. Uh-huh, barrels uh-huh. Uh, it's it's a nice kind of complex finish mm-hmm. did that sound like a, a sophisticated uh beer aficionado enough yeah yeah, yeah exactly at least by luther himself yeah. <laughs> Ta- luther probably <laughs> uh table talk well we we're ready for our own uh table talk here as an interesting thing, um, I was looking at Presbyterian churches in my area for the uh, reason that uh, my grandmother's birthday is coming up. My grandmother was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I of the four grandparents, she was the only she was the only religious one, and she she grew up Catholic. But later in life, she liked the Presbyterians even though she remained Catholic because they, she just thought their songs were better. Um, so, so we would, we would go to midnight mass at the Presbyterian church, which was just, which was just down the hill from their house. Um, so I was like, Oh, for her birthday, I should go to a Presbyterian service. Oh, I love that. Um, uh, and um, one of the Presbyterian, the Presbyterian churches that is close to me is the Presbyterian, the Presbyterian church of Canaan. Wow. Which I know, I know. I was like, <laughs> what what a biblical figure to name your church after. <laughs> <laughs> well, now were they uh, uh, naming it after Canaan the I, person or Canaan the land? Because Canaan is the land that Israel occupies after the Exodus and the wandering yeah, wilderness. Maybe, maybe. I like to think they've named it after the person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go yeah, with that. The, uh, uh, I'm for I'm the, for that. So, have you yeah. gone yet? I haven't. No, no, I'm not going to go to that one either. Um, I I didn't I didn't like the look of it online, but uh, I do want to ask why they named them safe after themselves after Canaan. Uh, no, there's another <laughs> one that uh, there's a Presbyterian reformist church a little further away that looks a little bit more legit. <laughs> mm, okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, let me know uh, what you find out. You know, I spent some time when I was first doing campus ministry, I was working in a Presbyterian church. 
And, um, you know, it felt familiar to me as someone who had grown up primarily in Baptist churches because you had the communion just once a month. Um, the governance was a little different, but again. Yeah. I really have very little to compare it to, but um, so it all just seemed like alien to me. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Presbyterian churches where I come from, though Dunedin in New Zealand, because Dunedin's a Scottish settlement. So, okay, right, right. You know, like a good half of the churches are Presbyterian. Right. I mean, yeah. that's that's somewhat similar to Pittsburgh. You know, it's it, I, I always one of my favorite Pittsburgh oxymorons is that it's a hotbed of Presbyterianism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the, all the managers in the mills were Presbyterians. <laughs> And all all the mill workers were Catholics and uh, Orthodox because of the immigration. They, yeah, because they were Eastern European generally, yeah. Mm-hmm. So today we thought it would be fun, if not a little exhausting, to talk about being woke and critical race theory. And my my working title for my notes was... FFS, of course, you should be woke. (laughs) No, no, exactly. Yeah. And actually, the the critical race theory, uh, well, critical theory in general thing kind of brings me back to a conversation we had. And this is before the Republicans even knew what critical theory was. Right, right. This is their shiny object of the last couple of years, right? Yeah, yeah. And this conversation we probably had about 2014 or 15 or something. Yeah, because you, you were still in Pittsburgh, so it would have had to have been exactly, that. yeah, 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 exactly. And I remember us, you know, both being in academia and complaining about critical theory in academia, and coming up with the idea that in academia there is probably too much critical theory, and outside of academia there is not enough. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's kind of weird that the uh, yeah that the Republicans are attacking that not enough part. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also yeah. remember you suggesting that instead of all the different departments in the humanities doing critical theory separately, there should just be a department of critical theory. Yeah, no, exactly. That's right. Because yeah, the music department's doing critical theory, the English department's doing it, the art history department's doing it. And they're all doing the same thing, very, but just doing it on a different subject, you know, on a different... Uh, yeah. And so it, it would make sense that there would be a critical theory department. I think now they're probably, the, you know, now that the, the Republicans have found out that critical theory exists, that's probably a very bad idea because that would be the department that they'd be wanting to like, <laughs> yeah, cut. Yes. And so the fact that they, they spread them out over all the departments, like the Republicans are probably totally unaware that it happens in music departments. Shh, quiet. (laughs) Or or that it happens, uh, you know, in all these different places. So (laughs) the fact that critical theory has been spread around is now, I realize, a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's good that we can grow in these areas, you know. We don't just get stuck in our ways. And honestly, when we hear people talking about critical race theory or CRT in popular parlance, it doesn't mm-hmm. really mean anything because it, it's a cipher for any kind of conversation about the history of racial relationships in America, the history of slavery or of Reconstruction or the Civil Rights Movement, any kind of discussion that tries to put these subjects in a long-term framework and a broader context is now just dismissed as CRT. Yeah, well, that's right. They don't, they don't know anything about critical theory. They actively don't want to know anything about it. So they don't actually know what they're talking about. And basically, like you say, it's a label. Critical race theory is a label for basically anything that questions white supremacy. Right. Absolutely. Or, you know, if you wanted to be, you know, more genteel about it, white hegemony. um, Yeah, I don't. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of reasons to be thinking about this. Some of this stuff has been festering uh, since 2020, which is weird when you think about it in in the Mm -hmm. context of the kinds of things that were going on in 2020. But one of the things that we came across when we were doing our 
uh, Christmas special, and we were talking about Mary's Magnificat, is just how, you know, in, in some terms, woke she is about how she talks about this inversion of power um, and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that of, of kings and then the wealthy being cast down and the poor being raised up. And how woke that is, you know, if if that's a term that you wanted to apply to it. And I don't know if it was then or a subsequent episode that uh, we were talking about the um, case in Florida between uh, Andrew Warren, the state's attorney who was fired for not prosecuting the new abortion law. And, you know, and and so he you know, brought a civil suit, which he eventually won against the state of Florida, even though there's no real redress for it. He did win that civil suit. And the legal counsel for the state of Florida, Ryan Newman, was using the term woke in mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. court situation, you know, in, in this in this court proceeding. And so the judge says, well, what does that mean? What does woke mean? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. And as an aside, I will say with this current crop of Republicans, you can never believe anything they say uh, or take it at face value unless they're saying it under oath. It's really, <laughs> it's really important in, in this day and age. So, so when the judge asks uh, Florida General Counsel Ryan Newman what woke means, he says it would be the belief that there are systemic injustices in American society and the need to address them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which I really do see as like, that means you're questioning white supremacy. Because if you believe that everyone is essentially equal, but there are groups of people that are continually not getting the same out of society as other people, like they're not making as much money, they're in prison more, things like that, then if you believe that people are actually equal, then there has to be a system that is maintaining that, right? And if there isn't a system maintaining that, then you think white people, uh, you think basically you believe in white supremacy. Eventually that's what it gets to. And, you know, what the interesting thing is he went on, you know, because the judge kept pressing him and he said that DeSantis does not believe there are systemic injustices in the U.S. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, so, he yeah. said that in court. That's not an exact quote, but the the first part is is from. If you want to look it up, dear listener, uh, it's uh, in Florida Politics, a blog called Florida Politics, and uh, Gray Roarer is the author, and uh, it's just a uh, you know reporting on the on the court proceedings. So, yeah, I I mean this really sent me down a rabbit hole. And and I think what you're saying is essentially right, but you know, we hear that and we're so so used to thinking in terms of systemic everything. Mm-hmm, systemic mm-hmm. injustice certainly, but in terms of systems more generally. That when someone says, well, there's not really a such thing as systemic injustice, you you kind of you do a double take. And so I started looking into this, and there's an active offensive against the idea of systemic injustice within the right wing and systemic racism in particular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What it is is like this hyper-individualistic view of that was a long time ago, I'm not responsible for what my forebears did, you're suffering is your suffering, your success is your success. It's not related to any kind of broader cultural value. They're all like hyper-individualistic choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's actually a really interesting um, article by a conservative Christian columnist, David French. He wrote this for the Dispatch. He he writes for the New York Times now, where he was saying, you know, yes, the, of course, there's structural racism, and he and he tries to talk about, and he actually talks about it pretty well as a Christian, and he's he's tracing this this controversy, the McLean Baptist Church, and it's like Northern Virginia, DC. It's this huge Southern Baptist church, kind of a mega church, 
mm-hmm. where the the senior pastor David Platt thought in you know around 2020 2021 that it was very important for the church to start taking racism seriously and start reading texts and having book discussions where they talked about the history of racism and the church's complicity in racism and some of the congregation members pushed back massively on this even to the point of filing a lawsuit that that he was violating the governance of the church wow. <laughs> you know it's it's really interesting because because then there there are these documents where they're basically saying they're they're calling everything that deals with the history of racism CRT they're looking at certain uh, black theologians uh, like Jamar Tisby and Esau Macaulay, uh, both of whom are extraordinary minds and extraordinary communicators who have written extensively about the history of enslavement and racial relationships in the church and theology. They're just calling those writers CRT and, you know, kind of cherry picking quotes without any context. And I want to characterize the approach as essentially deflection and deception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like when you see this pushback against authors who are doing serious work, well researched, well verified, supported, uh, and they get just this flurry of kind of smoke bombs being tossed everywhere and obscure theological reasoning and you know like one of the, in one of the letters uh, to the board of elders of this church these people knew all about the difference between a deacon and an elder in the new testament but had no idea apparently about what the bible says about broader issues of justice <laughs> it, it's just kind of blowing smoke literally and, and figuratively to deflect from the ideas that are being presented and to you know, obscure what's going on. And and David French actually does a really good article where he does, he looks at some obscure uh, Old Testament passages to show that, that justice has to be meted out from generation to generation. I think he actually gets a little too clever with it. You know, I love obscure Old Testament passages as much as yeah, anybody, yeah. <laughs> but it's much simpler than that. It really is much simpler than that. The The idea that all of our choices are hyper-individualistic, that all of our, our values are hyper-individualistic, it doesn't even pass a moment of scrutiny. What I think should be obvious about this mm-hmm. is that values are never an individualistic process. We learn our values in communities. Absolutely, yeah. Some communities raise and educate individual members to be racist. Some communities raise and educate their members to resist racism. Minority communities raise and educate their members to survive racism. Economic, political, legal, and educational aspects of our experience are always systems. If you have a community that's made up of primarily racist individuals that community will produce economic, political, legal, and educational systems that are racist. It's not complicated. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And even even in individualistic views of ethics, like longtime friend of the podcast, Emmanuel Levinas, um, <laughs> yes. you know, his view of ethics is that it is based in the face of the other. You know, so it's like this person is developing their ethics, but is when they do something, they see something in the face of the other. So it still requires that other, that other person to get it back. So, so even in something like his, which is quite individualistic, it's still based on reacting to your surroundings, which is your community, right? You mm-hmm. know, like, absolutely. Essentially like, like he's he has other as singular, but other is is standing in for your community is is essentially what's happening there and the other thing i like uh, this idea that you're not responsible for your past it's complex there's an aspect of what they're saying which i can understand it's like mm-hmm. if my great 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 grandfather did something 
I wasn't there as an agent to stop them doing that. So how like to to be involved? So I wasn't an agent. I didn't, you know, the, like the I was just a random possibility, right? A low percentage possibility at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, so like the idea that I could have influenced that, you know, so they like have no responsibility. But then there's another thing: is they're benefiting from what that person did. And I want to even take that further. So if we think about the enslavement of people from Africa and the kind of establishment of America, obviously my ancestors didn't have anything to do with that because they were not in America. They were elsewhere, if we're talking about the enslavement of people in America. Mm-hmm. Um, however, by being a white person and then moving to America – I automatically get the privilege of that having happened, right? So exactly. even though even though it was not my ancestors, I still benefit from that privilege. And so it's like, it doesn't have to be your ancestor and it doesn't even have to be your country. You can still benefit from the system that was created by that regardless, as long as you kind of like fit the kind of cookie cutter mold and enough like you know, like I like I have the wrong accent, but otherwise I fit I fit that mold, you know. So like I get like a strong amount of that privilege, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, and that needs to be understood by people. You it, know? it needs to be understood, and that again is something that people are actively denying and actively suppressing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm from a mixed race background, as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my father was a Lumbee Indian from Robeson, North Carolina. And he, he married a white woman of German descent from Baltimore. And it was kind of scandalous, um, you know, when it happened. Uh, but I was raised in a predominantly white suburb and went to predominantly white schools. And I looked like this big Teutonic guy. Uh, thinking about his heritage motivated me to read and study Native American history and their experience with the U.S. government. And, and that opened my eyes. Uh, but but my most of my growing up experience is of a middle class white person. And, you know, for the sake mm-hmm. of this podcast, I'll go with the legal analyst Ellie Mistal's take that you are whatever the cops think you are when you drive by them minding your own business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so you for you and me, we would obviously read as, as white in that situation. For Ellie Mistal, he would read as black, even though he has Asian heritage as well. So, yeah, it's it's the, the idea, I think, too, that 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 community values don't propagate past the life of an individual or past a generation is also kind Mm -hmm. of absurd. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, the entire homeschooling and Christian schooling movement is about having control over which community shapes the values of your children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think the first thing that we want to establish is, is that Structural racism, systemic racism, is not the same thing as critical race theory. It just isn't. How would you define the differences? I guess the best way to put it is that systemic racism is there in terms of enslavement, in terms Mm -hmm. of Jim Crow, in terms of... uh, voter suppression and redlining. Those are all examples of systemic racism that predate anything that we think of as critical race theory. They're systems that are built on the foundation of white supremacy, ergo systemic racism. And we can see them Mm. in a bunch of different, very powerful, uh, real manifestations. Critical race theory begins primarily as a legal framework to take account of systemic racism within the realm of American jurisprudence. I see, I see, I see. So, so because like critical race theory deals with systemic racism, but systemic racism we can see without, even without critical race theory. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and critical race theory really develops in the early 70s 
I, I'm remembering when I you had recommended I read a book on object-oriented ontology uh, by Graham mm -hmm. Harman, uh, A New Theory for Everything. And mm -hmm. and I read it, and it, it's a great book, and we've talked about it on this podcast. And I'm remembering getting to the end of A New Theory of Everything and Graham Harman saying, now that you've read this book, you know more than 90% of the people who criticize object-oriented ontology. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think the same thing is really true with critical race theory. I read a book on critical race theory, Neil, um, <laughs> uh, titled, intriguingly enough, Critical Race Theory, An Introduction. <laughs> and it's by, you know, uh, legal scholars, Richard Delgado, and Gene Stefancic, and it's it's a very kind of straightforward introductory text that would be appropriate in you know a high school AP class or a uh, you know a first year college class. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty easy, uh, pretty quick read. But having read it and made it through the entirety of of uh, critical race theory and introduction, I now know more about the topic than ninety percent of the people who are talking about it. <laughs> you know, which yes, is yes. sad uh, because I don't want to in any way. You know, you know, another book, if you read it, you'll know 90% more than most people talking about it. The Bible. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Including people in ministry, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is sad, but true. One of the things that uh, was kind of poignant to me reading that book is to realize that critical race theory as a legal theory begins in the early 1970s, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where black legal scholars can already see the effort to roll back aspects of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And that hits home to me, particularly, you know, this week, as we're, you know, recording this podcast, we, we just saw affirmative action rolled back. Uh, we just saw equal protection for LGBT people rolled back in, in a, a case that was purely fictional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there, there was no real plaintiff, so there was no real injury. There was no real standing. I think Gorsuch wrote the, the, the majority opinion for that. He, he may be the first justice in the history of the court to write a majority opinion about a entirely imaginary legal case. You know, and just as an aside, do people really hire website designers anymore? for wedding websites. Like, is that really a thing? I mean, uh, again, I got married 30 years ago, so there wasn't really an, an, an internet the way we know it now. But I'm just like, wouldn't that just be like a template? In yeah, no, no, totally. <laughs> There's just sites that exist for that. Yeah. Like, Already, like, who is, yeah. like, it doesn't even seem like a real job. And of course, this person doesn't have a real business who, you know, was, was filing the suit. You know, it's just someday I might want to design websites for weddings. And what if... Uh, is what it was. Anyway, that's an aside. Like what? What I'm with on that aside, though, with that LGBTQ plus ruling and the idea that if it's against your religion, you don't have to serve these people. Basically, are we about to see shops with like no gays allowed signs? Is it or shops with is, no blacks allowed signs, or no or shops with no Trump supporters allowed signs? You know, because what is equal yeah. protection? You know, that's that's yeah. one of the things. It's not just going to stay in the LGBT community. It's really rolling back uh, one of the key protections that came out of the civil rights movement. So, you know, in that context, it was really it, it was really powerful me, for me to say, yeah, the the initial scholars of critical race theory were quite prescient, and that. You know, almost before the ink was dry on the Civil Rights Act, they could see the efforts underway to erode the Civil Rights Act mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and uh, the Voting Rights Act. And they could see that their liberal allies were kind of oblivious to it and, and basking in the accomplishment 
of civil rights era reforms and and not as aware as they should have been about how quickly the backlash and the counterattack was going to come. And now we're really seeing that full speed ahead. One of the things that confuses me about America, um, and there's a lot, but this is, this, is, <laughs> this is one of the biggest ones, considering how powerful the Supreme Court is, is that it's basically a dice roll thing. Like, you know, like you put these people in for life or until they decide to leave. So they've got these life terms. And then it's just the luck of the draw as to like who's in power when they die Mm -hmm. or when they step down. You know, there's no democracy involved whatsoever. It's just just a dice roll as to like who's going to replace someone in the Supreme Court. And for something that powerful, that is broken. Scalia died during Obama's term. And, and there was a year, like there was plenty of time to have hearings and appoint a new justice. But you had Mitch McConnell just saying, no, we're not going to have hearings on this, which is yeah, yeah. Com- completely unethical. And was Congress completely overstepping its authority to advise and consent you know, they basically did not allow Barack Obama, who was the sitting president of the United States. I mean, he made a nominee. He 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 nominated uh, Merrick Garland. But, mm-hmm. you know, no hearings were allowed and no votes were taken because Mitch McConnell had enough of a majority in the Senate to shut that down. And so that is also broken. That's why there's so much pressure in Democratic circles to get rid of the filibuster. Anyway... So what is CRT? So I was thinking about this. And like I said, I went down a lot of rabbit holes. And as soon as you start looking in, into this, you, you come across more of the reactions that I think we've tried to show are mostly deflection and deception about what CRT is. One of the key moments in, in 2020, both here in Western Pennsylvania, but nationally, was when the the black church historian and theologian Jamar Tisby gave a chapel sermon at Grove City College, which is a very conservative Christian college um, in Grove City, Pennsylvania, which is kind of up 79 toward Erie. Uh, it's, a, it's a very small liberal arts college. You know, they, they've staked out their territory as a reformed Christian theology and free market. Ideology. Yeah, I mean, they are close. They are close to an outlet mall. Yes, it's you know? true. It's yeah. true. <laughs> so, in in October of 2020, which of course was after all of the Black Lives Matter uprisings in the spring and summer of 2020, Jamar Tisby, who is the author of The Color of Compromise, which is an excellent book. The subtitle is The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. It's, he wrote it in 2019. It's sort of a 1619 project for Christians to think about mm-hmm. how Christians responded theologically and politically to slavery throughout the history of the U.S., both before mm-hmm. and after the, the Civil War. And, and it's really illuminating. Uh, it's an excellently researched book. He's appealing to evangelicals to really consider this and to act to be anti-racist. But it's thoroughly within the evangelical tradition. It's thoroughly orthodox in, in the theology and, and the way he treats scripture. So it makes sense that Jamar Tisby would be a chapel speaker at a Christian college in October of 2020. You can still see his his talk in the chapel. It's still online. You just like Google Grove City College and Jamar Tisby, and you can see the full 21-minute video talk. So there's no reason to be wondering what it is he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And to summarize Briefly, in the chapel meetings at Grove City College, they had been, well, well, first of all, I should say this. In full disclosure, I once applied for a job there in composition and theory, knowing that it was a very conservative Christian college and knowing that I was probably a contrarian. Um, So, you know, my application included all of my, you know, chamber music and my writing about 
you know, some perspectives on faith and, and the arts and composition, and also a full video of my opera that had just been produced in Chicago about professional wrestling and its fans and all of the F-bombs and everything else, you know, and my thinking was, you know, I, I, I'm not sure this is a good place for me, knowing what I know about Grove City College. But if they look at this, you know, I'm not going to hide who I am as an artist or a Christian. If they look at this and say, we could really use your perspective, then that might be a good thing. And, and what mm-hmm. happened is I've got a very cordial letter back from the music department saying, you're clearly qualified, but you're not a good fit for what we're doing, and which I thought was quite fair. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I just want to put that out there that I'm not, you know, like my only like really direct interaction with Grove City College has been quite cordial, you know, so I'm not attacking the faculty in, in, in any sense. But so Jamar Tisby comes in October of 2020 and and in the chapel uh, series, they've been talking about the the book of Esther uh, which, of course, is the basis of Purim. There was going to be a, a, a pogrom against the Jews in, in Persia. And Esther, who mm-hmm. has become the, the queen, intervenes and risks her life by going into the presence of the king uninvited to set up this series of events that exposes the plot against uh, the Jews and and enables the lib- liberation of the Jews. And the key line, really, the, in in the book of Esther is when her uncle Mordecai, who's like a man on the street and has, you know, powerful enemies says to her, perhaps you became queen for such a time as this, mm-hmm. you know, like, like you're there now for a reason. That's basically what Mordecai says uh, to Esther. So Jamar Tisby takes this theme of for such a time as this and talks about the racial uprising. He talks about the reality of police brutality for for black people. He talks about the, you know, the murder of Ahmed Aubrey, the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of George Floyd. He talks about how more people participated in BLM marches that summer than all of the civil rights movement combined. That it mm-hmm. really was a mass uprising. And he said what you're doing now, how you're responding now is how you would have responded in the original civil rights movement in the 60s. And he quotes from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail about how Martin Luther King was very concerned about what he called the white moderate, the Christian, the good citizen who supported integration, but wasn't going to do anything about it. And, and, and how MLK felt that the white moderate was in, in fact, a, a bigger danger than the, the, the KKK and police attacking marchers because they were just going to be passive. And Jamar Tisby says to his audience of, you know, primarily white young people at Grove City College, you are the demographic that King was talking about. You Mm -hmm, are, mm -hmm. you know, in the demographic of the white moderate. And how are you going to respond now? Are, Are you going to say, we are here for such a time as this to respond and to work for racial justice? I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. Now, at no time did he say anything that was remotely critical race theory, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I've given a good summary of his talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, at no time did he say anything that could be construed as critical race theory in the academic sense, in the sense of legal scholarship. But it created this firestorm where parents and alumni wrote about how to, you know, the the president and the board of trustees about how Jamar Tisby was promoting CRT, and this was mission drift from Grove City College's conservative roots. The board commissioned a study, and the study found that along with Tisby's chapel talk, there was also a class in the history of race and racism that was using texts by authors such as Ta-Nehisi Coates <laughs> and, and Jamar Tisby, and Esau Macaulay, and they were going to basically stop offering that class. Mm-hmm. They had several findings. There, there was an Office of Diversity that had a dual role of helping minority and foreign students, but also doing, you know, kind of educational resources. And they were going to get rid of the educational resources stuff because that was CRT. So I don't want to spend too much time on the report that the Grove City College Board of Trustees put together, but 
it did get a lot of circulation and some people were, you know, including faculty there were mm-hmm. uh, uh, somewhat appalled and concerned about intellectual freedom and academic freedom. And, and you know, and some people uh, really praised it as being, you know, this, this great defense of traditional uh, something or other. But there are a few brief statements in the report as an attempt to summarize critical race theory. Uh, I thought it might be useful to read those statements and react to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, th- I think yeah, I get what you're saying. Not to color it, but um, but it's nice to see what idiots might think about critical race theory. Keeping in mind that the Jam- Jamar Tisby Chapel sermon was the thing that triggered this all and set this all in motion, mm-hmm. and he never mentions critical race theory, although he does talk about the history of oppression of black people in this country and what that means theologically. So, first of all, the the Board of Trustees in their report said, CRT evaluates people on the basis of race, alleged racial traits, e.g. so-called whiteness, and the sufficiency of their anti-racist works. The Bible rejects such biological distinctions and focuses on the heart, and it describes justice primarily in terms of our relationships with one another. So what's interesting here is that they're aiming for a moral upper ground. They're seeing critical race theory as the racist thing because it's looking at whiteness. What they don't understand is that in critical race theory, whiteness is not inherent to a person mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. right rightness is a is a is a is a social construct and not actually something within the person itself so whiteness is how you're treated not not inherently how you are and also these are possibly and i don't want to pigeonhole them too much but i'm just going to like say it's a safe guess to say these are these are the people that would uh, support racial profiling for police right they would be like well if this person looks a certain way we should probably have the police check them out <laughs> right you know yeah but that which sounds like their definition of critical race theory to be honest the thing is it's not about evaluating people on the basis of race. It's about taking race into account in terms of how it mm-hmm. uh, affects your relationship to legal authorities. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is a this is a constant theme for black people and Latino people in particular. You know, black people get pulled over at much higher rates than mm-hmm. than white yes. people just for routine routine traffic violations. One of the applications of critical race theory is, you know, it's okay for a judge if someone is in a three strikes you're out sentencing guideline and their two earlier strikes were traffic violations or came from traffic violations. It's okay for a judge to look at their community and say, oh, wait, in this community, black people are getting pulled over at three times the, the rate of white people. So, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so why is that? And is that really that more crime is being committed or just they're being pigeonholed by the system? So that's part of, in a legal sense, what critical race theory is working on. And like you're saying, whiteness is malleable in mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. U.S. You know, when Irish and Italians and Eastern Europeans first emigrate to the United States, they're treated essentially on the same level as blacks. But they are able to achieve the status of whiteness in how they're treated. Yeah, one of the things I often think about with whiteness in that in that kind of malleability is there is definitely, and I don't want to say it's equal. I don't think you can really weigh these things to make judgments like that. But there's definitely discrimination against poor white people. Mm-hmm. You see that mm-hmm. happening. But a poor white person, if they basically become a rich white person maybe they learn to speak with middle class speaking patterns you know they're richer so they're dressing nice people are just going to assume they were always middle class whereas you can have a black middle class family that's been middle class for generations and a young black person from this black middle class family will be assumed to have fought their way up right right? you know right so basically if you're white as long as you can pass for middle class, it doesn't matter what your background is. You can just turn up there, you know, and your history, your, your, your history is forgotten. Um, yeah. 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 
Well, let's look at another one of these summary statements from the GCC Board of Trustees report. Mm -hmm. CRT condemns people according to their alleged complicity, conscious or otherwise, with racism or racist policies and institutions. But its sweeping definitions of racism indict many people solely on the basis of skin color, economic status, and religious or political differences. GCC rejects CRT's determination to view human behavior through the lens of race. Yeah, yeah. So they're attacking ideas of privilege there, I think. People say, well, you know, I have white privilege, I have male privilege, I have these things. And they're looking at how people would be like, well, this is a white straight man, he gets these things. And they're seeing that as an attack. But... Actually, it's just an observation. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is there's nothing more white privilege than thinking that looking at the American experience through the lens of race is a choice. <laughs> you know, um, but what I'm also hearing underneath this is this this idea which has become a talking point on the right that there's no such thing as a systemic injustice and there's no such thing as systemic racism. And I would return to our earlier part of the discussion to say that everything, all of our interactions economically, legally, politically, educationally, all of those kind of formal relationships and also our informal relationships, those are all systems. And all of those mm -hmm. systems come from communities with shared values at some level, or else they don't become systems. Yeah. So another statement from the Board of Trustees report for Grove City College, CRT uncharitably detects aggression where none is intended, breeds resentment, and stokes recrimination. It impedes genuine repentance and forgiveness. So it corrodes the loving, unified, close-knit family environment that GCC seeks to encourage on its residential campus. Yeah, I mean, this is just making stuff up now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I think um, I really think what they what they're concerned about is cr critical race theory does highlight the benefits of being white, and I think they see that as an act of an aggression. They see that as, as critical race theory is saying, you're white, you get these advantages as being like, you have to give up these advantages. When it could easily be like, hey, you get these advantages and black people don't or other minorities don't. How about you treat everyone equally and give them, yeah. you know, like those, it doesn't have to be that you're giving up your thing. And I think this comes to the crux of it is that I think that is deep down a belief. And again, I'm reading between the lines. I'm making stuff up for them, just like they're making stuff up for us. But, uh, <laughs> but we're being honest but, about um, it. Yeah, yeah. I think that deep down there is a belief that if they actually treat minorities the same way they treat white people, if they offer the same privilege to anyone, then it will no longer be a privilege, right? It'll no longer be of of as much benefit as it was. Like a lot of critical race theory doesn't see privilege as an active thing. It sees it as a passive thing that's just put on you mm -hmm. that you just get from the system. I do see it as an actively maintained system, and and that people do actively maintain white privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm, will, I'm willing to. I'm willing to see it more aggressively, which is almost how they're saying it right, is. Yeah. But that is, but that that's not how most people are saying it is. Like, just because I'm willing to say that, I, most people just see it as, a, I believe, a, a passive thing that comes from like a systemic advantage. Right, right. Well, and to me, what's the idea that thinking about the history of white supremacy and racism and the impact that it has had on all of those, you know, systems that we've been talking about. And how white people mm -hmm. have benefited from that. I think that if we are honest with ourselves about that, which is what people like Jamar Tisby and Esau McCauley are asking us to do, then it actually should lead to repentance, particularly among white Christians. And I've encountered a lot of black Christians who 
have already forgiven, even in the absence of significant repentance from their white Christian brothers and sisters, and are willing to continue to forgive. So, you know, if if you understand, you know, first of all, the, the GCC uh, Board of Trustees report is not using CRT in any kind of precise way. They're just using it as a catch-all for any kind of understanding of the history of race relations in the United States. If we mm-hmm. as Christians really understand the history of race relations in the United States and really understand how the church has often failed miserably to respond in a way that affirms everyone's status as an image bearer of Almighty God, then it should lead to repentance and even more forgiveness from our black brothers and sisters. What I'm interested in within this thing is what does repentance look like? Is it just something that that like you can repent to God and then it's done? Or should repentance look like a larger social offering? Oh, <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> You'll be surprised to know that the report does not address that question. <laughs> in, in fact, you know, if you read the entire uh, 14 or 15 page report, there's an acknowledgement that racism exists, but there's no discussion of a proactive response on the part of the church and white Christians to racism through the, through the whole document yeah. which is a lost opportunity I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah yeah i mean i would just think that if people want to be serious about repentance that it should be done like in an active social way and not in a way that's personal between you and your wife <laughs> right because <laughs> that 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 kind of personal repentance does nothing for people who are suffering from an oppressive system and there is a lot in the bible that would support your view, you know, explicitly, mm-hmm. particularly in the book of James. Basically, James says, show me what you're going to do to demonstrate your faith. Yes. Yeah. Uh, here's another one, another statement from this report. CRT is inseparable from its political activism. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> and CRT's Intersectionality variant combines race with sex, sexual orientation, gender, economic status, and other so-called structural hierarchies to make its political agenda comprehensive. While CRT is an appropriate subject of academic study and critical analysis, it is antagonistic to basic American principles that GCC values, such as First Amendment liberties, equality, federalism, separation of powers, the rule of law, race neutrality, private property, and free markets. Were CRT permitted this, to obtain a foothold at GCC, it would create a house divided. This makes no sense. It's just word salad, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is, because I don't see the intersectionality, I don't see that it's antagonistic to the First Amendment in any way whatsoever. Or equality, yeah, no, but it's exactly about equality, or, or right? private like, property, um, or free markets. All of these things, you know. So, what is intersectionality? Like a real, a real simple example of intersectionality from Delgado and Stefancic's CRT introduction is, you know, a case where you have a black woman in a work situation where she's being treated differently than the white women and the black men. Now, do you? Is there a case of discrimination based on race because the manager actually gets along really well with the black men in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Is there discrimination on the basis of gender because the manager gets along well with the white women in the workplace, but the black women are treated differently from all of those classes? So by, the, by virtue of being black and a woman, there's a different kind of discrimination that's that's being experienced there. And these are real legal cases that have been brought and been, you know, they're real court records uh, for these kinds of things. And intersectionality pops up first with the Combahee River Collective, and they were a group of black female scholars that were kind of getting together and looking at discrimination and privilege and things like this. 
and seeing how they combined with different things. I believe I'm like going back in my memory here from first reading about the Combahee River Collective, but I think that like a lot of them were also lesbian as well. So there was, right. you know, they're looking at, at these different things and saying like, well, how do these things combine? I'm not being treated differently because of one of them. It's an intersection of all of mm-hmm, these things. Mm-hmm. That are, that are part of this, and um, they never used the term intersectionality, but it very clearly came from from that academic group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I should also say on like white privilege, the first use of white privilege as a term is by um, Bob Lorna, and in his book Racial Oppression in America, mm-hmm. I believe is what it's called, and that's in the early seventies. You know, so this is not a new idea. This is an idea we've had for over 50 years. Right, right, right. Um, and he was looking at, at different immigrant groups coming, to, coming into America and how they're treated. And he actually does view white privilege as an active thing. And he kind of takes that view I mentioned at the start, this idea that if people are equal, but you find these people constantly at the bottom of the ladder, the same groups of people – then the system has to be maintained that is doing that. Yeah. And how and and so a lot of the book is about how is the system being maintained anyway. Yeah. So so yeah, they the and the 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 Combahee River Collective is in the seventies as well. These are not new ideas. No, no, I These no, they're not. not. And yeah. you know, and uh, like we said at the beginning, it's kind of CRT is kind of a shiny object for the right at this point. Yeah, and there's yeah, not exactly. really any concern about whether it's understood or not, but which is kind of why we're doing this to talk about what it is. And I'm kind of going through these statements from from this GCC report, and in my head, I'm kind of bringing uh, Delgado and Stefancic to bear on this, since it's pretty clear to me that no actual primary sources in critical race theory were studied in the formulation of this document. Well, and that the na- the nature of critical theory is that there isn't a primary thing as well. Like, <laughs> well, that's um, a good point. Because, you know, it's it's about subjectivity and an individual's experience in different places. And critical theory is a dialogue, right? It's not a... Um, it's not a doctrine, right? Um, yeah, and and they're treating they're treating a dialogue like it's a doctrine. Yeah, yeah, that's is- that's a really good point. There, there's one more statement in, in terms of their summary. Mm-hmm. CRT's worldview is impervious to rational argument and lacks analytical rigor. Indeed, CRT sometimes demeans rational argument as itself racist and oppressive. It allows, and they're quoting from someone else here. It allows every piece of evidence that might refute one's theories to be transformed into further evidence of how deep and comprehensive the problem of oppression is, unquote. In this respect, CRT directly challenges GCC's academic mission. Yeah, I mean, this is just, this at this point, this is like, because they don't understand critical theory, they think it's not rational, right? <laughs> like, right, and there's an element in critical race theory, one, one of the important elements, because as you were saying, critical theories of all sorts are a dialogue. And storytelling and legal storytelling is one of the most important contributions of critical race theory in the legal realm, where there's an effort to try to bridge the gap between races and classes in terms of working narrative into your legal arguments. And that's a really important and also oft-criticized aspect of critical race theory. But I think to say that's not rational, and it's interesting that they use the idea of CRT's worldview without criticizing the idea of worldview at all, (laughs) you know, which is inherently about... We perceive things but, from our our experiences. Exactly, exactly. And and one of the things is critical race theory doesn't have a worldview. It has many worldviews, right? <laughs> it's, it's multifaceted in that way. But they they have a worldview, right? right? Yeah. What I would like to to know in such a situation is what does a worldview that differs from theirs but is still rational look like because I'd like, I, I, I just would bet that no worldview that differs from their own would be considered rational by them. Uh, that is how some strains of Christian thinking misapply the concept of worldview. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they kind of take 
the idea of worldview, which is a very postmodern concept, and then try to synthesize it with rationalism. And it's, it's just a, a Frankenstein of a mess. I wanted to say, too, you know, this idea of, you know, not admitting rationality into the argument comes up in pushback at McLean Bible Church, where the anonymous letter uh, that went to the elders and the, and the uh, pastoral team, it, it quotes from Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, and describes Esau Macaulay as pro-CRT. Again, Esau Macaulay never deals with critical race theory, or really critical theory in any sense in Reading While Black. He does talk about history, and he does talk about his own experience, and he does really in-depth biblical theology. And Reading While Black is one of the best books about theology on any topic that I've come across in years. That's my plug. Get it, buy it, read it. But one of the, the, the black marks against the one of the pastors at McLean Bible Church was that they led an online discussion group on Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black. I'm quoting, in this book, Macaulay contends that he does not need to provide evidence to support his claims on race and policing, stating, quote, I am skeptical that statistics will convince those hostile to our cause. Furthermore, statistics are unnecessary for those who carry the experience of being black in this country in their hearts. We know, and this book is for us, unquote. Now, Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, you know, uh, Macaulay is against rational argument. He doesn't need to provide evidence. Well, that quote is from a chapter on trying to develop a biblical theology of policing, where he speaks about his own experience as a young black man who was headed for football scholarships, trying to just keep himself together in a poor neighborhood till he got to college and the rituals that he went through to make sure that he was going to make it out alive in case he encountered the police, searching his entire car, always driving for his, for his friends to wherever they were going to the party because he wasn't going to drink or do drugs, searching his car after he had been out with his friends to make sure they hadn't left anything that he could possibly get arrested for if he were pulled over and his car were searched, you know, that he had this whole ritual of surviving a chance encounter with the police as a young black man with hopes of like going to college and getting a football scholarship and getting his ticket out of poverty. Right. And how he was Mm -hmm. at a gas station gassing up his car one time and other friends drove by in their car. They chatted. The other people drove on you know, and before he was done gassing up his car, these two black SUVs pull up. It's in the 90s after the Rodney King thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the police. And they're like, we just had a report of a drug deal here and forced them to like, you know, show their hands, search their car. And it was okay. They didn't find anything because Macaulay was absolutely meticulous about making sure Mm -hmm, the vehicle mm -hmm. vehicle he was driving didn't have anything in it and that his friends weren't carrying anything when they got in his car. And then he does this this absolutely, this very detailed uh, exposition of Romans 13, which is the passage about submitting to government authorities and what that means and looking in historical context of how the Roman soldiers were both the military and the police force and what that meant. Uh, looking at passages in the scripture where people are following God by not obeying the authorities. For instance, you know, Moses opposing Pharaoh, uh, which is a passage that Paul quotes in Romans 9 before he talks about submitting to authorities, as if that were not enough. It's, it's superb theology. It's rigorous theology but written at a popular level so that we can all understand it. So the idea that Esau Macaulay doesn't support his arguments is absolute. Just obviously this person did not read this book, let alone that chapter, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and responded to it basically as a meme. Someone said Esau Macaulay rejects having to support his arguments. And and here's the quote where he says this. And and then it just circulates around without any context. And it's absurd. And as if that were not enough, there is a footnote in that very chapter to 
an article from 2014 in the Washington Post where there is statistical support for how black people get pulled over at a much higher rate than white people. So, yeah, 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 (laughs) you know, and we also know that from listening to our black friends, that that is true. Those statistics are so widespread that he's right in that no amount of statistics is going to placate the people that don't want to believe it anyway, because they're everywhere. Um, you don't have to look for those statistics. Right. Like, and again, you know, these, these documents are being produced in 2021, you know, after Ahmed Arbery, after Breonna Taylor, after George Floyd. I'm convinced that the, 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 the reason the murder of George Floyd hit home so deeply for so many people is that it happened when we were all just trapped at home. And watching our TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so everybody's aware of this stuff. Everybody's seen these police officers put their knee on this man's neck and hold it there until he dies. And you can look at those officers and it's obvious that they don't expect there to be any kind of accountability for this. Yeah, yeah. You can watch them and you're like, this is a culture. This isn't a one-off. This isn't a panic. Mm-hmm. This is just like mm-hmm. this is just what they do. So, so yeah, no, it's it's very matter of fact. There's no like yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. There's no there's no rage there. It's just like this is just what we do. Again, I said earlier in the podcast, deception and deflection. It's very deceptive to say that Esau Macaulay eschews rational argument. It's very deceptive to say in general that CRT eschews rational argument. It's it's very deceptive to say that Jamar Tisby says anything about CRT in his 20-minute talk at Grove City College. Those things are just not true. And at some mm-hmm. level, if you continue to propagate those views, you're bearing false witness in a biblical sense.